0: I'm on the trailer end of it, and the most people are on the building end of it, and I don't know what they're going to do with it, and I don't know how much they're going to they're going to put into it or onto it.
1: Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host Ethan Waldman, and this is episode eighty seven with Stephen Wright from Wright Trailers. I met Stephen at the Vermont Tiny Fest, and I was impressed by his contributions to a panel discussion about the future of tiny house trailers. I asked Stephen to come on the show because, well, he's been in the trailer business for a long time building custom trailers, and so it was only natural that when the tiny house movement took hold, he started building custom tiny house trailers. Stephen sees some problems with the common designs that are out there for tiny house trailers, and has some ideas about how we can improve the trailers for the structures that we're building on. Either way, it's a great conversation. You'll definitely learn something new about trailers. Heck, I didn't know what torsion axles were until my conversation with Steven. So I hope you stick around. But first, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode, Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is the super helpful guidebook that I wrote five years ago to share all of the knowledge and decisions that I made to build my own tiny house, along with what I did right, what I did wrong, and how I would change things. The guidebook is now in its second edition. It's been completely rewritten and expanded to reflect how tiny houses are being built today. And it also includes several new tiny house stories from other tiny house dwellers. The guidebook has been expanded to include things like sips and metal framing and all the different kinds of insulations that are being used in tiny houses, and I seriously think this is the most helpful thing you can buy if you are thinking about living in a tiny house. If you go through the guidebook from start to finish, you will have a solid plan for all the systems and everything that's going to go into your tiny house. The second edition has been a long time in the making, and I'm really excited to share it with the world. To learn more, you can head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD. All right, I am here with Stephen Wright. Steve has more than 25 years of hands-on trailer experience, building them alongside his dad from the ground up. An experienced welder, fitter, and fabricator through the years, Steve has gone from working with his dad to taking over the reins of running one of Southern Massachusetts' most respected trailer dealers and trailer manufacturers. In the last few years, he has heard of the need for quality, dependable trailers to serve as platforms for the booming tiny house industry, as too many of the ones being manufactured were of low quality, low bidder type design, and not the type of trailer that one would wish to build their home upon. Also, the platforms were being built as cookie cutter designs and were not being custom designed to meet the specific needs of the customer. Um, So, Steve Wright, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me, Ethan. It's a pleasure.
1: You're very welcome. And, you know, uh, we met at the Vermont Tiny House Fest a few weekends back and I attended your panel discussion on, you know, trailer design and kind of the idea of pushing tiny house trailer design forward. And I'm curious, maybe we could just catch people up since I'm guessing most of the listeners didn't get to sit in on that session. Um, tell me about the current state of tiny house trailers and, and what you kind of see as, you know, what's wrong with them?
0: Um, a lot of the people that come to us um, are not quite aware of what they need, length, width, how to get to a point where they attach their tiny home or tiny house to the trailer. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we, it's a lot of legwork. We actually have a whiteboard. We have um, a time where we sit down and brainstorm and just determine what the customer needs in the way of a trailer length, all of those commonly asked questions that's what we see and uh and we open up the the table for an open discussion to build the trailer as they would like to see it built
1: okay that so fully customized process what if somebody doesn't really you know somebody's kind of more of a diy or an amateur builder and they don't really know what they might be looking for in a in a custom trailer
0: Um. Well, if someone doesn't quite know what they want in the way of a trailer, I will normally um, use the pad series design trailer that is from the West Coast as a starting point, if you will. Um, They have a nice way of anchoring the house to the trailer. It's widely used. We've built a number of that style frame. I know you mentioned earlier about cookie cutter frames and so on and so forth, but it is a workable trailer for most.
1: So correct me if I'm wrong. This is kind of the trailer that has uh, a metal belly pan and flanges around the
0: sides. You are correct. That is correct. Um, And so we start there. I have had a bunch of do-it-yourselfers come in. And simply want me to make a basic platform to build their home. They're not as um, concerned with thermal breaks, um, water on the underside, and it's a tough situation for us because we can only go so far. After the trailer leaves here, we don't normally see it, and so. How it's built upon, what the materials are that are used, we don't necessarily get to see that aspect of it. So it really is an open-ended type situation where they come in not knowing what they want. But we can make it, I mean, we've made stuff that's 11 feet wide, which is way over the norm, the normal width, the legal width of 102 uh, or 8.5 feet. And, uh, we've made stuff 11 feet. And I mean, just some of the things that people have had us do. Um, yeah, it's just outside the box and that's what we love doing. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: So one of the, one of the benefits of the the pad style trailer is that you get to set your floor system down into the trailer. Correct. So my tiny house I built before there were I didn't think to get a custom trailer. Okay. And, you know, mine is just a flatbed utility trailer. And so my whole, yeah. my whole floor framing is on top. And what I've learned in the intervening time is, well, first of all, if I had been able to set that floor system down into the trailer, I would gain back that height because it effectively lowers the house. Correct. However, I have heard that if you're building in a very cold climate, you mentioned thermal break and, you know, an issue that people run into is that when they set their floor down into that trailer, but then they build their walls on top of that flange, they have a really cold spot right where the right where the wall meets the, meets the floor.
0: That is correct. And which leads me to. The the idea of I'm not sure why people use that belly pan. Now, for me, and again, I don't see the trailer after it leaves us, but for all intents and purposes, it seems like it would be just better to have a flat surface and simply build an insulated floor on that trailer platform and then build your walls on top of that insulated floor so that there is no thermal break. I understand that the height is a concern for most people with regards to getting the most for their dollar, uh, getting the extra little four or five inches that they might need in their bunk or loft or whatever it is that they've got planned. But for the sake of making it easier, it seems like to me that it would be just a simpler idea to set your insulated floor on the top of the trailer rather than having something recessed inside.
1: Right. I think it just, it appeals from a savings of weight, too, you know, because then if you're using that belly pan essentially as the bottom of your floor system, you don't have to then lay plywood in there, for example. You know, you the bottom is already taken care of.
0: Well, um, from what I've seen and what I've built, that's not necessarily the case. In the pad series, the original pad series, um, Iron Eagle, which makes the pad series, has cross members that are 24 inches on center. And they lay on top of that sheathing or that little belly pan, if you will. They lay a half inch piece of plywood. And then they run a two by six. I guess a a perimeter frame on the inside of that belly. And they put the studs 16 inches on center inside the belly. And then they cap that with half inch plywood all the way out to the side extensions. And the side extensions, we call us side extensions. That's the extension of the trailer in front of and behind the fender. So, and then on, so they cap it with a half inch piece of plywood. And What happens is you've got six inches of space in the belly where you could put, I don't know, you could put your electrical, you could put your plumbing, you could put, obviously, your bat insulation, but out on the side extension portion of that, there's nothing there. You got nothing. Nothing. So in my case, I'd say, well, geez, why not build a trailer with some four-inch dropped axles or some torsion axles, get the trailer down lower, and just build a nice platform for someone to put their stud sixteen inches on center and go to it, but yep that's that's my take
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's that speaks to another big issue and challenge for building is just what you do with those wheel wells how do you how do you handle them protruding into the structure, or how do you handle making sure that they don't like leak water into your structure?
0: Well, what we do is uh, we actually build a fender. Your off-the-shelf fenders are rounded or have radiuses on them, and they're not the most conducive to trying to made up building materials to them. So we make a squared-style fender, um, and we seal it with silicone. And then obviously it's left up to the builder to make all of the necessary adjustments to making that waterproof. We do also use a flange on the fender, if so desired when you have a spilled trailer, so that when your sheathing comes down, it's actually coming down to that flange, if you will, or flare, if you will, over the fender. And it gives you a nice surface to make your sheathing to, And then that is also sealed as well on the inside and the outside. And it helps to shed water off of the fender, if you will.
1: Right. You have to, you have to kind of decide like, am I going to try to prevent water from getting on top of those fenders ever? Or am I going to like, accept that it is going to get in there and give it a path to get out?
0: Correct. And you know, I will say that the fender on a trailer is not, um, how can we say totally watertight? And so, it would be uh, to the builder's benefit to make sure that whatever they're putting above the fender or around the fender is watertight, because we do not guarantee that it to be watertight. Right. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. No. That that's great to remember. You know, these trailers are vehicles. Correct. You know, they're not. And, and though we're building houses on top of them, they're, they're different animals.
0: That is correct. That is correct.
1: So you mentioned something a little while ago that I wanted to follow up on, um, torsion axles.
0: You know, what Ooh. are they
1: and how are they different than what, what we see on most trailers?
0: Uh, so uh, I'll start by explaining a spring axle, if you will.
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Spring axles um, literally have a leaf spring. And the axle beam or the round tube that goes from the left side to the right side is tied together. So if one side moves, the other side will move. What happens when you get into a torsion axle, Torflex is the proprietary trademark name, if you will, from Dexter. You're getting independent suspension, so the wheels Even though the axle beam is tied to the left and right side, the the way it's made is the inserts for the suspension are separate on the left side than they are the right side. So you have independent suspension. You also will lose all of the wearable items, such as spring eye bolts, equalizers, springs, any of those items that have a tendency to wear, break. Um, you lose all of that with a torsion axle. The torsion axle is a premium-priced axle in comparison to the spring axle. But what you gain from it—better uh, tire wear, you know—the fact that you don't have all of the maintenance and wear items—I uh, I would see it. You know, if it were my home, I'd want to use that. If I was traveling, I'd want to use something that provided me those those benefits.
1: Right. So this sounds like it's something like if, if you are planning to do some traveling and moving of this house, that, you know, it, it's probably a worthwhile upgrade just from the sense that you're going to be transporting a 40, 50, 60, you know, who knows how many tens of thousands of dollars house down the road. Yes. um, And you want it to tow well.
0: Yeah, I would say, I mean, you know, you're talking probably an upgrade price between, let's say you had two 7,000 pound axles. The price difference to go from spring to torsion it might be seven or eight hundred dollars so for those people who are planning to do some traveling, it is a nice option for the end user
1: now is this something that you could upgrade an existing trailer with or is it is it more structurally tied in
0: um no you could you could do that you could upgrade yes you could yep absolutely um It's um, as a matter of fact, the components on the axle are all identical. It's just really the suspension portion of it that has changed. So you've got the same brake, the same um, hub, the same bearings. Um, The only thing that might be a problem is wheel placement under the wheel well. That probably be the only issue. But for most part, you could you could upgrade to torsion axles with a little bit of extra work and yeah yeah that's something you could definitely do cool yep yeah yep yep so
1: so what about different um different types of tubing or materials because i i i've seen trailers with a wide variety there's c channel there's l l brackets there's tubing like what do you
0: recommend I've got a lot to say about this. Um,
1: well, you're on a podcast, so go for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you know, this, the C channel is nice in that you can paint and coat all of the surfaces. You can see just about everything that you need to see. Whereas with tubing, you cannot. And, you know, ultimately, uh, with tubing, If it's exposed, uh, you just cannot paint the inside of it. I mean, it just stands to reason that you can't get in there. However, what channel (laughs) channel doesn't have the torsional qualities that a piece of tubing has. And going down the road, tubing is going to give you a better support system for the house and the structure. The tubing is going to be less susceptible to twisting, bending, um, it's, you know whereas channel will flex and bend more because there's only three sides instead of four sides. Um, and speaking about tubing, the Iron Eagle or the pad series does use all tubing for primarily everything on the frame. There are some other material that's used, but the main structure is tubing. And um, some of the issues besides paint with tubing is the fact that one, you can't paint it. And two, if you're in inclement weather where it freezes or where it snows, if there's any water that gets into that tube and freezes and does not have an escape route, it will split the tubing. I don't care how big it is, how thick it is. The ice will split the tubing and it just you'll have a mess. So where does tubing (laughs) lay in the mix, in the scheme of things, in tiny houses? Um, Tubing is more money than channel. But again, if I was building a house, I'd probably build it out of tubing. Um, I think I had mentioned this at the tiny house festival, that if money were not an option, I would consider having the frame uh, galvanized. Uh, not a cheap process, um, but, you know, for those people who are very particular, who want longevity, there is without a doubt no better product that you could get, maybe aside from aluminum. But aluminum is a whole nother ball of wax. <laughs> we won't touch on that. Uh, but I would probably have the tubing galvanized. Um, and they sell it by the weight, and it has to be done at a factory, it's not something that we do here. It is a involved process of dipping the trailer or whatever product that you're galvanizing into a vat. And there's a series of vats.
1: So they would actually pick up the entire trailer and dip it into a galvanizing vat?
0: That, that is correct. And there are certain things that cannot be galvanized. Anything that has been painted would have to have the paint stripped off of it. Rust is not an issue because they clean the material and their whatever the process is, they clean that rust and mill scale off, whereas they can't do that with paint. Got it. So yeah, and with the galvanizing process, it would it would outlive the house. It would outlive the house. You would never have any type of corrosion or any kind of rotting. I think it's guaranteed for somewhere around twenty years, and it it, it it's a physical molded-on type of zinc. That's what they use as zinc. Yeah. So, in in an ideal world, I would have to say, like a twenty-four foot trailer, like a Pad Series trailer. Let's say you were spending eight hundred on paint, you might spend sixteen or seventeen hundred dollars for the galvanizing process. Got it. Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well,
1: I, I wanted to wait until you were done.
0: Um, I wanted to say also the galvanizing process too does entail a different process of fabricating in the sense that because they're dipping it and they're selling it by weight there has to be drain holes in almost every area of the the frame so that they can access all of the surfaces and that that they can also drain any of the remaining zinc once it's removed from the vat. So it, it does entail a little bit more. Fenders would probably not go in because the heat, is so great that it would probably turn your fender into a potato chip. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, for the gist of the mainframe, um, yeah, I'd say you'd, you'd be paying probably twice as much than paint anyway. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So tubing with galvanizing and torsion axles, that would be the, the Cadillac in my personal opinion.
1: So let's talk about axles because you see two axle trailers and you see three axle trailers, and it seems like you could do two seven thousand pound axles, or you could do three five thousand pound axles. What do you you know wh- why would somebody choose one over the over the other?
0: Or- uh, good question, very good question. Um, when you go to triaxle, a triaxle configuration is a cheap way to get your gross vehicle weight up. In layman's terms, it's a cheap way to carry more weight. It's a configuration that, you know, can be tough on tires and suspension parts because of the footprint of three axles. And when one turns, um, there's a lot of scuffing with the, three axle configuration and that translates into tire wear a little bit more difficult on suspension pieces but if you want to get a little more capacity and do it in a way that's a little cheaper tri-axle configuration is definitely the way to go and you had mentioned like three 5,000 pound axles versus two 7k axles There are a lot of ways to cook this goose. (laughs) Um, For instance, in the trailer industry, we could take two 7,000-pound axles, and we could rate those not for 14,000, but we could rate it for 16,000 legally and without issue. And you might ask me your next question, well, how do you get 16,000 out of 14,000? (laughs) <laughs> you've only got two 7k axles. That's a great question, Ethan. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, what happens is in the industry, part of the weight is carried at the pin or the coupling device, the Pinto ring, the ball coupler. And there really is no law indicating how much tongue weight you can add to that. Let's, for instance, let's take two 7k axles, 14,000 GBW. We rate it at 16. How do we get there? Well, we're adding 15% of the weight to be carried by the truck at the coupling device. So that's a little little way to get around, or that's another way to get a little more capacity out of your axles without having to worry about legality issues, DOT. And so the 15%, that 15% is added. So if you literally take 14,000 and add 15%, it comes out to 16,100 pounds. We round it to 16. We like to be a little bit more conservative when we do a a trailer like that. I have done them in the tiny house configuration many times for customers. And um, yeah, so I mean, when you go to a gooseneck, for instance, some people, some manufacturers will go as high as 25 to 30%. Because part of the pin weight is being carried not at the bumper, but now it's over the rear axle of the truck. Right. So so there's a lot of ways to get your gross vehicle or capacity higher, um, if you will. And uh, you know, whether
1: it seems like you're not helping yourself if you if you rate you know, if you if the if it's calculated to carry that extra fifteen hundred pounds at the bumper and you build a, a tiny house that's really uh Tail heavy, then you're you're just overloading your trailer.
0: Yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, you know, like I said, at sixteen thousand pounds, you would be, you'd be running that trailer at its absolute max all the time. And you know, we do it for our commercial people um, very often, and it's not something that's frowned upon or any issues. It's just that, you know, I let people know that, you know, whether it's a house or a piece of machinery, you're going to be running that trailer at its max.
1: And is that, that's actually was my next question. So great, great segue, which is, you know, it's hard to figure out how much your house is going to weigh before you build it. However, there's, there have been enough tiny houses built that you can kind of say, all right, a 20, a 20 foot long house is going to be a little under 10,000 pounds. 25 foot house is going to be like 12 to 15. You can, you can estimate. And my question is, is it, is it bad to be running your, you know, buy a 10,000 pound trailer for a 10,000 pound house? Like, or should you be exceeding that weight estimate with your trailer so that you have some wiggle room?
0: Like most things, the axles, the tires, the suspension, They do have margins of safety built into them, of course they do. And uh, what that threshold is, what that working load limit is, I I unfortunately don't know what that is. Um, But I am all like the
1: actual fail point where like stuff starts just breaking.
0: Correct, exactly. And I will say that the um, that that is a big issue because. I'm on the trailer end of it, and the most people are on the building end of it. And I don't know what they're going to do with it, and I mm-hmm. don't know how much they're going to they're going to put into it or onto it. And you know, <laughs> that's a loaded question, Ethan. I I, I would veer the side of not running my trailer at the max. I just, right. and, and I mean that that gets right down to the nitty gritty of how much are you using the trailer. How often are you moving it? And if you, you know, for those people listening, if if they're planning on moving their trailer and really moving around the country or wherever, they might want to have a certain margin of gross vehicle weight, if you will, above what they're actually carrying. Sure. Yeah, I I just I veer I veer towards the side of caution and you know just being safe.
1: Other than getting your house weighed at a, at a weight station, what, what would be some signs that you've exceeded your, your capacity? How would you know?
0: Well, for those people who don't know how to weigh their house, I would say that any company that sells materials, dirt, stone, gravel, most of the time, those people will allow you to bring your truck or your trailer configuration to them. I have one down the road from us, and they charge a small fee. It's like about $10. And they'll weigh the trailer and the load. But signs that your your trailer is overloaded. Um, that's a loaded question. Maybe um, your tires... Literally. Yeah, literally. (laughs) You would have tire wear on the inside of your tires and not the outside. Now, when we talk tire wear, it's a whole nother issue. But you can have anytime you have tire wear on the inside of your tires, that's a telltale sign that your suspension is is working too hard or overloaded. And the actual tire at the bottom is kind of towed out, and the top of the tire is towed in. And that's a telltale sign. Aside from that, um, people could go underneath their trailer, take a look, and see if the round beam, the axle beam, has hit the underside of the frame. And in some cases, you'll see that it's hit so badly that it's actually dented the underside of the frame. But aside from actually being visually inspecting the trail to see that it's overloaded, it's kind of hard to do. It really is. Your tire, if it was towed in at the top and out at the bottom, um, it could have been from a pothole. It could have been from hitting a curb. Uh, just It could be a number of different things. So it is kind of hard to decipher how much weight you actually have on the trip. So Sure.
1: I have so many questions, and you're you're just a wealth of information. So I'm just going to keep them going.
0: Just keep going. You keep them going.
1: <laughs> so because it's a, you know, you don't get the pers- your perspective that frequently. I talk to a lot of tiny house builders and dwellers, so it's interesting to hear this from the perspective of the trailer manufacturer from the foundation. Yeah. You know, if you you know, if you were coming home in your brand new tiny house pulling it into your driveway or wherever it is that you're parking it to live. How would you recommend jacking that trailer up off the ground for long-term living like jack stands, cinder blocks? Like what do you recommend?
0: I, there are a lot of trailers that we have built that have scissor jacks on and
1: aren't those just for stabilization though?
0: They are, and um, I don't know how stable they really are in the sense that if you know if you wanted to provide a, a, a foundation or a, a, a solid foothold on your tiny house, I would use either dunnage, blocks of wood, a fixed jack stand, or an RV style jack stand such as the ones that you can thread up and adjust the height. Um, but yeah, I, I think a, uh, a, a stone platform of some sort would be nice to drain water and I would not use jacks. I would use some type of, of an RV style, uh, stand, almost like a jack stand, if you will. Yeah. But you're going to need a little bit more adjustment than a, a jack stand provides in the sense that you're going to need some type of a threaded rod that can adjust so you can make it level.
1: Yeah, and I, I've seen some tiny house trailers where there's actually, um, and I'm going to, I don't know the, the proper word, the, basically the type of jack that you have at the tongue that you turn from the top.
0: Okay, yeah. Where they
1: have one of those welded almost to each corner of the trailer.
0: Um, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I'm not a fan of that style. I am not a fan. Any of those jacks that swivel or swing out of the way will get the trailer up off the ground fine, but they will not provide a stable support for the trailer. Sure, Their their linkage on how they're attached to the trailer are very loose and not tightly secured, so it would be wobbly at its best.
1: And then in terms of supporting the house, you know, obviously you're trying to get the wheels off the ground, um, or you, I will actually, I'm going to ask you about wheels next. So we'll pause okay. on the wheels, but all right, how many jack stands do you recommend? Do you just need like one in each corner? Do you like to do, you know, support the thing along? Cause you, you've got a whole house on top of it that also has some structural rigidity to it.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, even like a camper. Uh, If you've ever been in a camper, you can still feel the movement. And just like we build anything that we build here at Wright Trailers, um, I I would be I would veer towards the side of having more than less. Uh, I'm not you know, if I was going to have a 24 foot tiny house, um, I'd probably have one on each end and I'd probably have one or two down the center of it just to make it, you know, more stable you know, for the, for the sake of, you know, movement inside the house and, you know, so it doesn't flex because it will flex, it will flex and it will move a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, that's, um, I guess based on all uh, on how long the house is.
1: Yeah. No leveling leveling is, is difficult. I mean, like I, I made the mistake where I parked my tiny house. It's just, it's like on the lawn. There's not, there's not, it's constant. (laughs) It's never level it's always sinking into the ground but um you know to level it especially if you're going to use multiple jacks along the the trailer the last time i did it i i had a friend to help which was good but you know i have two bottle jacks that can lift and then you know those i have those threaded aluminum rv jacks but those are again those are just stabilizing you can't really lift with those so you have to yeah. get it You have to get it to the right height and then put something stable under it.
0: And and so getting back to having the jacks on the corner of the trailer, that might help someone if you don't have means of a bottle jack or a floor jack. Maybe a floor jack or a bottle jack is not conducive to where you're located, Uh, you know, uh, on the ground or the dirt or wherever it is you might be.
1: Right. You can't leave it there permanently.
0: Correct. Correct. And so I say, um, you know, if someone is going to do this, you know, those jacks on the corners, um, I mean, they'll lift the trailer up and they will allow you to make the trailer level. But you're going to have to put something underneath the frame, whether it's a cinder block, whether it's six by six pressure treated wood, you know, of some sort. And again, this gets get down to how how long is the trailer going to be where it's going to be. I mean, if you're going to be there for a week, you might not want to go and be exhaustive on how you set this up. So uh, using the jacks on the corners, Erin had a trailer that we built where she wanted jacks on the corners of her house to lift the house up. And she was going to put dunnage underneath the frame once she got it leveled. Um, but aside from that, those jacks on the corners of the house strictly to lift the house up, and I would just use, you know, pressure-treated wood or a or a a block. And again, fine-tuning that you might have to get some different size wood in order to get the height correct.
1: Yeah, the fine-tuning is is difficult.
0: Yeah, because as soon as you move one side, it's gonna throw off the other side. And uh so Yeah. And these are all things that I haven't experienced because I'm not a tiny house owner. So, you know, I kind of just use my own idea as well. If I were out there doing it, you know, how would I do it? And, you know, but uh, I don't know if that helps you any, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that that definitely helps because this is something that's more specific to trailers than it is to tiny houses. It's just like, how do you get this thing to be level and stable on the ground? Yeah. Regardless of what's on it. Um, Go ahead.
0: There are, there are a lot of, uh, there are also a lot of camper uh, type things. And I hate to, to bring in camper stuff because I know it's totally different than, than the tiny house industry, but they do have electronic, Leveling systems, but you know, I, I, I throw that out there very loosely. Um, I, I don't know if it's something that I would incorporate into a tiny house trailer. Sure, uh, a lot of the camper related stuff is very minimal, you know,
1: yeah. And and you it, see, I mean, I'm pretty sure I, I broke a scissor jack or two when I first got my trailer and I, I ordered some scissor jacks on Amazon and I misunderstood you know, again, they're, they're meant for stabilizing. And in a camper, you know, you envision that you're pulling up somewhere and you're camping for a few nights or a week, you don't need to get the tires off the ground. You just want to level out the trailer on the suspension so that it's not bouncing when you're walking around and that it's, you
0: know, stuff doesn't,
1: eggs don't roll off the counter. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's a good one. Yes, um, you're right. You're right.
1: So what about Uh, Sorry, do you have more that you want to say? No, no,
0: go right in. I'm sorry.
1: Um, what about tires? Like, and again, for long term, because like most people are building tiny houses, moving them every once in a while, but for the most part, they're just sitting there.
0: So, all your axle and suspension pieces are just bolted to the bottom of the frame. In the case, let's say you had a two axle trailer, it would be a matter of six bolts to remove all of the hardware. That's it. Six bolts. Wow. Six bolts. Um, That's just the simple fact of it. You know, getting it out from underneath is another issue. (laughs) But yeah, um, I would definitely, you know, if you, I have a trailer here that I don't use for tiny houses. It's just for some things that I do as a hobby. And in the winter months, I take and I will take the trailer and I will shield the tires from UV and I will also take and get the tires off of the ground. Um, I usually will just put them on some wood just so that they're not sitting on the the ground. Um, But, you know, if you, that is a lot, that's a, that's another question that I heard quite a bit at the festival was how do I get the suspension off if I want to? Um. Six bolts, yes, but you'd also have to cut the brakes, the wires for the brakes. That's just two wires, not the end of the world. Something that could be easily made to come off easy once the trailer was built, if you built it that way. But yeah, I mean, at the very least, I would take the tire off.
1: Put them inside.
0: Yeah, get them out of the elements. Anything that's out of the elements is going to have a longer shelf life for sure. Yep. Yep.
1: And what about like what about other long-term maintenance like what do you need to do on a yearly or every couple of
0: years? So again, based on travel and mileage put on them, we recommend uh once a year to bring your trailer to a service station. You can do it yourself. It's not rocket science. Um it is Just some elbow grease getting a little dirty. But we would recommend once a year that you bring your trailer in, pull the hubs and the drums off, pull the seals out of the drums and clean the brake, clean the bearings. At that point, you've got everything apart. You can see, you can inspect everything. You know, you can see if there are any heat marks, uh, maybe from overloading. You know, any type of bluing or discoloration on races or bearings is not a good indication. And uh, once you have that stuff pulled apart, you can look at it, clean it, regrease it, and usually, in most cases, you can just put it back. Parts to do a job like that probably cost you about fifty or sixty bucks. The biggest issue is just being able to get the trailer up off the ground and pull the hubs and drums. You would need an inch and a half socket. Need uh some tools to grease the bearings, but outside of that, very straightforward, and that should be done once a year. Yeah, once a year, once a year. So, if a
1: trailer is not being moved, like say five, it's been sitting there for five years. It's not getting a lot of wear, but it's also just sitting.
0: That that could pose an issue with too. Uh, where it's just sitting and not being used. If it was sitting for five years and you were foreseeing a, a a move or a trek to somewhere else, it would be well advised for you to do a bearing repack at that time. Okay. You know, yeah. Uh, and again, I would say if you're doing any more than 15,000 miles a year on your trailer, you should be repacking those bearings at least once a year. So, and if it's, and if it's sitting, you know, maybe you do it once every two years or, you know, or when you're going to move it, you know, at that point and address it at that point. Cool.
1: Well, (laughs) Steve, this has been super helpful and uh, I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three tiny house resources that you like to share when people are like, well, I don't know, what do I do? Do you have any, any go-to resources or things that have helped inform you about the tiny house movement?
0: The biggest help for me really has been the end user coming in and sharing their ideas and really allowing us to create a trailer around what they're trying to build. Um, the most helpful to me in this whole scheme of building trailers has really been the pad design. Uh, it it, 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 we have copied it. We have altered it. We have changed it. We have made it better in certain areas. Um, and we have used it and, and just made different width trailers, different lengths and they've been very helpful. There based out of Oregon, I believe, Washington or Oregon. And um, I came across them from Nietzsche Consulting, I believe it is, Nietzsche Consulting.
1: Niche Consulting from Lena, yeah.
0: Yeah, Yes, and she's a very fine young lady to deal with. I've dealt with her before. And um, I would say, yeah, they, they have been very helpful. People like yourself, the end users, people who are actually using tiny homes, building tiny homes have been really my biggest resource because I don't typically get to see people building the house themselves. Sure. But yeah, I would say, uh, you know, the pad series by iron Eagle. And then really my biggest source of information is end users. They, they just, yeah. So that's, that's who I'd like to plug. (laughs)
1: All right. Well, Steve Wright from Wright Trailers, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. This was really helpful.
0: Well, I thank you for having me and uh, maybe we can talk in the future.
1: All right. Thank you so much to Stephen Wright for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes, including links to Wright Trailers and photos of some completed tiny houses at thetinyhouse.net slash zero eight seven. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 087. If you have a question about anything you heard in today's episode, I would love to hear from you. All you have to do is head over to thetinyhouse.net slash ask to submit your question for the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. I can't wait to start answering your questions on the show. So head over to thetinyhouse.net slash ask to record a question for the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.